0: Motivation and inspiration are powerful tools that change and influence perspectives, voices, and projects that shape the world. With all the negativity in the world, it can be hard to find those rare and beautiful stories that tell of inspired spiritual activism and individual healing journeys. Walk the path with me, Dr. Trish Rosher, on the show Heart, Change, Consciousness where we inspire listeners to take action towards a more just world. We'll hear from authors, change makers, influencers, activists, poets, filmmakers, and cultural workers who practice inspired spiritual activism and transform vulnerabilities into sources of strength. Heart Change Consciousness allows us to understand the world from different perspectives and highlights what is possible when we are fearless and open ourselves to our sole purpose and engage each other across boundaries. So let's self-heal and open the path to self-sovereignty. Heart Change Consciousness begins now. Hello, welcome to Heart Change Consciousness. I am your host, Dr. Trish DeRocher. um, And I'm here today with Dr. Sahar Satrazadeh, an activist academic whose work focuses on critical comparative global ethnic studies, by reimagining the often contentious meanings of resistance and reconceptualizing knowledges and practices within the context of injustice. Sahar is especially interested in the possibilities of scholarship and teaching to affect social transformation by engaging with sociologies of education, uh, particularly in higher ed. A daughter of U.S. refugee settlers of Azeri, Iranian, and Persian heritage, Sahar is currently an assistant professor of education studies at DePauw University and a research associate at the chair for critical studies and higher education transformation at Nelson Mandela University uh, in South Africa. So, Sahar, thank you so much for coming and being here with us today.
1: Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm really honored and looking forward to the conversation.
0: Yeah, me, me too. So um, full disclosure, I had the good fortune of being a colleague of Sahar's a couple of years ago, um, and that's where I really had a chance to witness how deeply she embodies um, the the principles, right, with which her work engages. So um, sometimes in academia, these can be like purely intellectual exercises, but this is not the case for Sahar. This is really a way that she lives her life. Um, And she brings a really powerful, creative energy and resistant imagination to her scholarship. Um, So, you know, there are many people Uh, Addressing social justice issues in academia, focusing on oppositional knowledges and social movements, but often it stays with critique Um, and Sahar's interventions are not just about critique of existing structures. Uh, They're really about propelling us towards like a thinking, a being, a doing, and imagining on all of these different levels uh, uh, differently, right, in more just ways, um, and really motivated by a deep sense of love and uh, collective accountability. Um, so Sahar I know a little bit about your work but I always feel like um, you know whenever I'm looking at your website or listening to an interview or just seeing what you're working on I always learn more <laughs> because you you it's it's such um, your work is so passionate and you bring passion to everything you do so, I'm wondering if you can just share with our listeners, um, in your own words, the work that you do in the world, um, and anything about your life path that's influenced your work, um, and like, how did you come to be you and embody this work so passionately?
1: Wow. First, I have to rewind a little bit, because I think you give me too much credit, Trish. (laughs) I, I really appreciate Uh, you seeing that, you know, I'm embodying this work, you know, beyond the intellectual realm. And it's it's a work in progress. I'm still striving to do it. It's something that, you know, I fail at a lot. You know, there's a lot of challenges and obstacles, but there's also victories along the way. And I know I'm not alone in trying to look at ourselves in, in a holistic manner and not just like, you know, in this physical body kind of form. You mentioned that my parents are refugee settlers, so they met in Iran, and they are members of the largest religious minority in Iran, which is persecuted currently by the government, They're Baha'is. And because Baha'is are not considered citizens citizens of the state, they did not have really any basic rights, including the right to higher education. And so very similar to during Jim Crow in the United States, when finally, you know, African Americans were allowed to go to university to uh, to some universities and colleges. It was only at night. It was segregated from, you know, whites during the day. It wasn't ideal times, you know, and so similar to the context of my father. He went to college to finish his bachelor's degree in eight years, you know, and only allowed to go at nights because he wasn't allowed to mix with, you know. Muslims and Christians and Jews and Zoroastrians. So Baha'is were segregated, but they did not want this life for their future children. And so they made the decision to flee because of the persecution. Family members were incarcerated, imprisoned, and also executed. And they went to Germany first. And Germany, you know, of course it has, with its xenophobic undertone said, there are no jobs for immigrants here. We don't have jobs for foreigners here. And my father had learned German fluently, thinking that that's where they were gonna go, did not know English, but they ended up, you know, arriving in the United States where I was born. And, you know, fast forwarding to my teens, I found out that one of my cousins in Iran, his name is Fai He was riding with, you know, a large group of other youth to go to the Turkish border to get access to higher education. They they went to settle in a refugee camp to eventually access higher education. So they were traveling on their way there, but they were all shot down and killed due to some kind of conflict at the border. And I was 17 at the time. so I was 19. And I was like, wait a minute, you know, my cousin is denied access to higher education which in you know in iran baha'is are not allowed to go to university and here i am as a 17 year old and i'm taking you know i'm taking my education for granted have a lot of privilege in in terms of what i have access to where i'm living in the us and realizing that education is not mine you know it never was that it's something i have to do with it and that's what matters so i you know, starting with my parents and the journey my mother and father and how it was so justice-oriented, I feel that that's why I became so determined to seek justice in everything that I try to practice and do. Like I said, it's a work in progress, but the inspiration of trying to find justice in everything and equity in everything even within the injustices and inequities within the systems and structures like higher education like even within activist spaces right and human rights discourses it's just been really motivating for me to like even how I think how do I teach how do I write how do I engage with people with community and I'm still working on it so it's it's something I'm still evolving but so I think when you say, how does this come to be you and embody this work? I still am trying to become and do better and whatever that means, you know, trying to seek and find out what that means.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that context and, and just how the pieces of our lives do often come to influence our our points of intervention or, or where we see, right, There's there's many different ways of carrying out justice in the world, but like, what's our entry point and where do we feel pulled and compelled by? And, um, yeah, so I, I really hear that, um, just recognizing higher ed and the education system as a site of struggle and, and as a a site of injustice and how do you carve out space for justice and equity within these structures? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sahar, when we were kind of having a conversation, you shared with me um, a recent piece that that you wrote, which is kind of another point of intervention for you um, in the Journal of Baha'i Studies um, called When We Invisibilize Our Nobility, um, where you address how the stories of of so-called marginalized groups often become reduced to trauma narratives Um, And framed within the limiting language of victim or survivor paradigms where everything becomes framed in relation to trauma. So so complex human beings become like kind of reduced to some moment or continued moments of trauma. Um, And in this piece, you also address your own personal history with intimate partner violence. And you reference an event where you were publicly labeled a victim of domestic violence without your consent, right? And kind of in real time. So um, the story that that Sahar shares in this piece is, you know, she's about to present, she's on a panel, and then someone introduces her in this way that she doesn't understand herself, and it kind of just throws throws her off. Um, So, Sahar, you discuss how, like, this this moment challenged you to create a new narrative for yourself, Um, but it's not just about that personal. You're connecting that personal to, like, okay, what do I learn, and how can I connect this personal experience with more of a macro-level reflection on the danger of, like, damage-centered narratives of oppressed groups, where... um, you know, groups can become pathologized or, or somehow only seen in terms of, of perceived brokenness. Um, so I just want to provide a couple of quotes, and then I'd love to hear more about um, why you wrote this piece, you know, why um, this avenue and, and all of those things. But so you suggest that to counter this framing, which is really limiting, um, you argue for, quote, visibilizing nobility for ourselves and our communities. And you state that, quote, visibilizing nobility demands that we look at members of our human family who endure injustices and inequities in varying degrees with new eyes, not merely damaged bodies or spiritually disembodied beings, but as souls, as embodiments of nobility or noble embodied beings, end quote. Um, so I'm wondering, Sahar, if you can just tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write this piece, um, to share your own story as part of the piece, and um yeah, just kind of discussing a little bit more about what do you understand visibilizing inherent nobility to be.
1: Yeah, so that's the question I'm still, you know, trying to trying to come to terms with. But it was it was interesting to be on this panel you know after being in this abusive relationship for five years that was it was economically emotionally psychologically physically and spiritually abusive it was just you know the multidimensional in terms of its abuse all that's interconnected but i hadn't disclosed that to anyone and i'm at this violence against women act you know capital briefing and I'm introduced, you know, with with the closing sentence, and she's the victim of domestic violence, which is which was shocking because I didn't tell the panel organizers mm-hmm. that I had experienced abuse. So mm-hmm. clearly there was conversation about me behind my back and maybe she would be a goodness. So I, as I mentioned in that, you know, in that paper, when we vis- when we invisibilize our nobility, it's like I was I felt tokenized as the poster kind of victim the one who's still damaged right not yet trying to because it was a survivor who introduced herself as such and then there's me who's you know the other end oh here's our you know here's the one who's damaged who's still like going through it and what can you all do and it was really powerful for me because it wasn't until you know later that I realized I was diagnosed with PTSD and still working through that and going to South Africa for my postdoc. And I went to Bloemfontein and I was engaged there. And then there was just this, another onset of student protests happened, you know, across the country, including at the university that I was at, at the University of the Free State at the time. And I was just noticing a lot of victimhood centering and it wasn't even only that the media was portraying the victimhood centering but it was people also centering themselves as victims we were centering ourselves as victims because it was also appealing to people right to center yourself that way it was what would make the story more convincing it would what would probably get you to get help it makes me think of this whole idea of what Cole talks about this idea of the white savior industrial conflicts, right? It happens in development where Mm -hmm. there's this idea that we need to perceive people less than, or kind of even this idea of the noble savage, where there is some damage, there's uncivilized aspects of them, but there's also this nobility, this human part of them that can be saved, right? And what can we do with that? And I don't think it's only limited to white people, but even kind of Euro-America, especially in the Northwestern hemisphere, there's this idea of how we view the world as damaged or less than or as deficient, deprived, what Walter calls kind of the five Ds, right? She says deficiency, damage, you know, depreciation, all these things. And so thinking of my own experience and being in South Africa and having conversations with mentors and colleagues about it and why are we fetishizing victimhood so much? How is it helping me as an individual? How is it helping as a com- as a community, in terms of trying to seek out justice? Right. Um, it it kind of reminds me of how a lot of times there's focus on quantitative inequalities, which ends up perpetuating stereotypes about communities. Oh, like they are you know criminally prone, or they are abusive towards one another. That's just their character, or you know it also doesn't provide context. It doesn't provide deeper context and meaning, and it doesn't humanize people to be like, actually, how am I connected to these people rather than making, creating a distance, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I was in South Africa, I continued to see the psychotherapist that I was, that had just started seeing before moving to South Africa and from the United States. And one time we were having a conversation and she said, what if you said a a prayer every morning as soon as you woke up to recognize your own nobility. And I was like, what? And I was (laughs) so confused. Because, you know, like people pray for like um, to pass tests or difficulties if you're having a difficult time, you know, or for your friends, for your parents, for your spouse, for your partner, for your children, you know, for gratitude. But to recognize my own nobility, you know, it was just, it was, it seemed so, simple but very profound yeah and so within the baha'i faith we there's this belief that every that what is the core of identity is a soul and that so this idea that everyone is inherently noble that everyone is created noble and if you believe in this idea of a creator or higher power of being that you were created noble and the soul is what connects us not necessarily just our humanness our flesh our you know our bodies and our skeletons and our blood that's not what we all have in common but I also this idea of the soul and this highest this the soul of like it's an unknowable essence the soul it's not tangible but it's capable of the highest aspirations of a human being you know like the the highest qualities and that everyone has this but because we're also human and imperfect and flawed We have to do work to excavate those qualities of the soul. right? So there's this kind of understanding. And so when I talk about visibilizing inherent nobility and being being advised to recognize my own, it was really liberating to be able to write this piece because it made me realize of so many things I've noticed, so many things I've read about how we're always positioning ourselves as above or better than or more fortunate, privileged right, than others, which kind of results in paternalism a lot of times. Paternalism, you know, um, and also it dehumanizes others as if people don't have a quality and capability to overcome tests and difficulties as well, to transcend them, right? it doesn't mean that we're supposed to deny oppression and the injustices that happen. And that's not my intention of even stating that, but that the oppression is not what defines a, a person. Right. And and so when I say visibilizing inherent nobility, what is actually the qualities? What are those high qualities, those spiritual qualities that don't need to be measured by how many you know quantitative statistics are out there of how these people and communities Are working through what they're going through, the oppression and injustices that still continue and persist and exist, right? That have not ended. Mm -hmm. But what does that look like to also raise those issues? You know, not just talk about the fact, like Trevor Noah has this joke, it's a small bit he does about the UNICEF infomercials about this fly and he says why is it that in every infomercial there's this poor child from you know the African continent and all of a sudden there's this fly like lingering right around the mouth and he's like I've tried really hard and I've never been able to get a fly on top of my mouth like that he's so and he said but there's this perception that you have to make you have to present this image of Of helplessness, of vulnerability to the point that that's the only way that someone can connect. And to me, that doesn't see us as equals, right? It sees it sees someone as I need I need to save them. I need to help those people, kind of thing. And so I think this idea of looking at people as noble is just something that I was like, wait a minute. I think this is something that I need to work on. But also this idea of What does it mean when we recognize, you know, each other's nobility as well? Yeah, I,
0: um, so much of that resonates with me. I'm trying to like (laughs) pull different threads, but um, my academic work on transnational testimonials is very much about that and and thinking about um, life writing narratives that are you know, many are coming from, from the global South, although I understand there are many Souths, right? So it's not just, you know, how we are kind of taught to think about it, but there's many flows of power. Um, but these forms of life writing as social interventions that are also insistent on, look at all of me, look at all of the pieces, right? Not just like this Um, kind of story that you want to tokenize or or market or turn into a commodity but all of the complexity and the paradox Um, and when I was working on that story and it's interesting how this is dropping in because Haiti Haiti just experienced this this earthquake this past weekend and I was writing um, when the the 20 um, was it the 2010 earthquake hit um, and, uh, Edwidge Danticat's work, she's Haitian American, um, is, I was really engaging with that work a lot, and she was asked to come on to be interviewed, and she thought she was coming on to be interviewed, like, she's a MacArthur scholar, she's writing all of these pieces, she's thinking about these things, and then when she showed up, um she was kind of framed as the quote-unquote native informant and she wasn't asked about like what do you think about these things like what's your perspective it was how do you feel you know how is your family you know and it's not that that those questions aren't important but that she was kind of when I when I hear you know your framing on the panel and you were like oh is that why I'm here? Like, that's not my understanding of why I'm here. Um, I really kind of hear resonance with watching that play out. Like I was just, I just turned on, you know, the television, watched the news and there she was. And then to, to hear some of that struggle that she named after that of like how she was being framed. Yeah. Um, so I guess, I'll just share that that I also have a history with intimate partner violence and I, I know we talked about this a little bit but um it was something very similar um where someone kind of held up a mirror to me and was like, "Hey, you do social justice work which which is in many ways and um the kind of more full expression about recognizing everyone's inherent nobility. Why don't you recognize your own?" And that was that was really hard for me to hear. And that was really uncomfortable for me to hear. And um, in in my work with somatic coaching, I've come to understand that this is also a classic trauma response, right? Or, or those of us who are aware of these um, you know, structural injustices, we don't want to take away from other people's experiences. And so sometimes it can be like, oh, but my experience in relation to this is so small. Um, but that also creates a strange hierarchy, even if it's like an inverted hierarchy. And um, the, the language that that I've come to use for what I hear you describing through the the Bahá'í Faith, which would be like a just kind of adjacent or analogous to, you is this higher self, right? Like so I have this human self, I have these identities, I have this like life path, but I'm also multidimensional, right? And I I do have this higher self and and this higher calling and this higher soul purpose. Um and to recognize the ways in which I wasn't honoring that was was really painful. Um honestly, and I guess I'm wondering if you could just share um you know how how did you come to understand, um, that this inherent worthiness, like, how did you connect the dots? I'm wondering between like your personal experience, your spirituality and your therapist being like, Hey, why don't you practice this? Um, and just what, what that experience was like for you having that mirror held up.
1: Yeah, it was, it was definitely humbling, you know, and you sharing about your own experiences and talking about how painful it, you know, it was to it's funny because, you know, there's this thing of you just totally forget yourself. And I think often when it comes to being in an abusive relationship, you you learn if you haven't already learned before being in an abusive relationship because of other forms of socialization that make us more prone to kind of stay in those kind of relationships. It's like this reinforcing belief that you do not have value and that you do not matter. And so you forget that. So when someone tells you that it was really humbling because I said, oh my goodness, it reminded me she had, you know, I have ovarian cancer. And so I'm in remission right now, but I really did not want to have this procedure because I really wanted to have children. So I didn't want to face the risk of having to have anything removed in case, because you have to sign a waiver that just in case you know certain organs must be removed in the process to give consent. And my therapist was like, if you're so committed to justice and all this, you have to be alive to be able to do that. She said, and I said, wow. (laughs) you know it's kind of like that's so true you know it's and she's like there are many ways to love children you know and and so it's like it kind of reminded me of that that thing of not thinking about my commitment to justice in terms of beyond the self at this point it was so much it was so inward at that point but then looking at this idea of of nobility and seeing like what is it you know what does it mean to actually recognize my own, because it's almost feeling hypocritical, it's not, you're not fully understanding what justice is, if you're not practicing it within first, right? It's kind of like, what kind of, what kind of hypocrite am I, you know, in those kind of things? And it's interesting you mentioned Edvij Dundekat's work, because one thing I remember in an interview, when she was saying the reason why she likes to write about Haiti, about the people in the stories is because people only hear or visualize Haiti when there's a coup or a natural disaster. You know, like even after hearing the news of the earthquake, um, which followed the assassination, right? That happened of uh, the president. And, and I was just like, Haiti can't catch a break. And that's like I, what I was saying because I was so frustrated about all the, the trauma and the damage narratives that you constantly hear. It doesn't mean that it's not a reality that has historical implications. Right. 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 Um, But it was just like, wow. And it's the same with Syria. If you Google Syria, all you see is images of war Um, and Afghanistan was happening. Right. You know, there's always there's something everywhere where you notice that there's this kind of even highly, highly profiling Black faces, right, as being criminalized within the United States and even within databases and in the police system. And so, this idea of if I believe that everyone is inherently, you know, noble, then I have to look within and be like, hold up, I need to do work on myself to see what that really looks like. Because if I don't do that work, then it's not complete. Then I don't really see people as noble because I'm not starting within, you know, it's it's kind of that whole like deeds not words you know and not beginning and ending with words i have to actually strive to be and do this on a regular basis and when i went through that abusive relationship and all the different experiences i felt like my spirit was like i had no spirit i didn't want to live um i did attempt to take my own life and I immediately called a friend who came and stayed with me, you know, um, assured my, and I called my parents, which was strange. I would have never thought to do that, but I called my parents and my mom came on the first flight that she could. And watching my mom scrub blood out of the bathtub was just, it really hit me. Yeah. Um, it was like, wait a minute, this whole idea of the spiritual implications of like damage to the body doesn't only affect one, like an individual soul, but it affects every soul that you're connected with. And so it was really, really humbling for me to be like, this is not just limited to myself, but it has to start with, with me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And Sahar, I just want to name, I just, I really appreciate that, just the vulnerability that, that you bring to your work, right? Because I mean, these, these really are stories that, um, in different iterations, of course, people have resonance with, and, um, there can be so much shame attached to just sharing it. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons, um, funnily enough that, that I left academia was because I was very aware that I wasn't taking care of myself and, um, I ended up having a, a full hysterectomy and ophorectomy. Um, I had a PMDD, which is just, um, now I understand it as an ancestral imbalance. There was like a lot of rage and trauma in my body. Um, and and that, that wake up call where someone was like, hey, you need to take care of yourself too. Similar to like, if you want to do this work, you have to be around for it. Um, it. It kind of flipped that switch for me. And I was like, oh, inner flows, outer right like if I want to be doing this work I need to change my relationship with myself and that changes the energy that I'm then putting out in the world and it and it also models right this other way that like yes right we we can take care of ourselves and in fact that is a form of resistance to the to the system and and not self-care as in like just you know bubble baths and spa days self-care is in like I'm not texting anyone back today, I, you Never. know, <laughs> as in, like, I'm going to establish some boundaries and and really ask, like, my mind and my heart and my soul and my spirit, you know, what I need right now. Um, so we are about to take a break, um, but when we come back to Heart Change Consciousness, we're going to talk more about the connection between spirituality and justice, um, and you know some of some of the limiting ways in which these things become artificially separated um, uh, in
1: conversations.
0: Um, so I hope you'll come back. It takes courage just to breathe.
2: Live this life. Hi, I'm Patricia McNair, host of Divine Guidance with Patricia, and I'm here to help you live a more authentic, spiritually connected life. Join me every first and third Wednesday. At 9 a.m. Pacific on TransformationTalkRadio.com Being who you are in everyday life is the key to unlocking soul wisdom within that our whole self already knows. Get ready to embrace your spiritual, mental, and emotional well-being, your whole being. Discover your gifts and strengthen your connection to spirit. We will explore earth guidance, divine truth, and love, past life lessons, and so much more. So listen in to Divine Guidance with Patricia and join in your personal adventure to triggering, opening, validating, and being all that you are. For more information about me, visit divineguidance.earth. champion your life with me, Leanne Champion. First Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific time on TransformationTalkRadio.com. That new gym membership might help you get fit, but what about emotional fitness? Jump into the rushing waters of personal growth. Don't waste another minute feeling unfulfilled. Visit ChampionYourLife.com and let's do this together.
0: Join Jennifer Noel Taylor on the hit show, Quantum Touch Radio, supercharging your life on TransformationTalkRadio.com. You'll take a quantum journey as well as reveal powerful yet simple steps to create more abundance, better health, emotional and mental vibrancy, and happier relationships using universal quantum touch principles. For more information, visit
1: QuantumTouch.com. and
0: Hello, all. Thank you for joining us on Heart Change Consciousness. I'm your host, Dr. Trish DeRocher, and I'm here today with Dr. Sahar D. Saturzadeh discussing the limitations of trauma-focused narratives for addressing the lived experiences of historically oppressed groups um, and why social paradigms that define people in terms of victim and survivor frameworks really limit the spiritual expression, um, and in uh, Dr. Sahar's words, the inherent nobility of the human lives that they seek to honor. Um, so, Sahar, just in having this discussion, I'm really reminded of the work of Tarana Burke, um, who's who's the founder of the Me Too movement, um, and I, I, even in that, I want to name that uh, Tarana Burke founded the Me Too movement years before it was picked up. And um, in many ways, she was left behind um, in in kind of current iterations of it. But in more recent interviews, Tarana Burke talks about the limited value of trauma-centered narratives and and has kind of been very explicit that like yes the Me Too movement is important but not as an end point just as an opening to get the conversation started. Um, so there was a, a New York Times interview with her just a couple of years ago on kind of the next iteration of her project moving away from just the the trauma-centered accounts to like okay what are people doing to heal themselves after being harmed by intimate partner violence um and one of the things she she talks about in here is not just like like leaning into the trauma or getting stuck in the trauma but you know she talks about leaning into the joy um, and and actually kind of expanding and creating more joy um in our lives, as as a form of of resistance, um, but of course also just as a as a means of surviving and thriving, right? Like thriving mm-hmm. is a form of resistance uh, to structures who don't want you to exist. Um, so, in your in your piece that we've been discussing, you describe um, this concept of constructive resilience and. So I hear a lot of parallels in that and what Tarana Burke lays out. And um, I guess I just want to name that. Uh, I think sometimes there can be this, um, I watch it with my clients. I've you know, i watched it with my students over the years. Like there's so much trauma in the world. How can I feel joy? Isn't it unethical to feel joy, right? Or to be happy when I know this other thing is happening. Um, and for, for me, for my spiritual practice, it's it's about the both and and like holding on to that complexity and that both of these can coexist and we don't have to kind of be in a binary to to either just solely focus on one or the other. But I'm wondering how you kind of understand um, you know, the the importance of of joy and and what you mean by constructive resilience.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. Joy is something that we all need, right? We all need, we all need to have joy. And I think joy accompanies justice. Even though justice demands a lot of arduous labor, it is painful, it is frustrating, it's angering, it's fatiguing, but it also has. The reason why justice matters is because I think the joy, you know, that is there. And I think even having joy and experiencing joyfulness and happiness, even in times of hardship and difficulty and and trauma. And like you mentioned that we're not only unidimensional beings, right? So it's okay to have pain and anger, but also to have joy. It's okay to... Be frustrated and sad, but also to be happy and to want to, you know, experience this contentment. And with regards to talking about this idea of constructive resilience, I didn't come up with the term. It actually, and it has goes by many names, but it just emerged as this idea of from the international bahai community this idea of describing communities that have endured oppression systematic oppression and finding ways to transcend obstacles into opportunities as exemplary of constructive resilience mm-hmm. and one thing that you often notice among communities that are you know disenfranchised marginalized communities of of, of color in particular there's this, you know, resentment of resilience discourse. You know, you'll you'll read on Twitter, you know, one thing that I've been following a lot of people, I'm just tired of being resilient. I'm tired of being, like, it's supposed to be in our DNA because we come from a particular community or group, racial, ethnic group, an indigenous community that, or, you know, a, a certain part of the globe, right? The global South or coming from, or we are women, or we are, non-gender-conforming, we come from this marginalized identity group, and we're supposed to be resilient. We're supposed to perform resilience because we are marginalized and disenfranchised. And what's interesting is, I think, what constructive resilience does, it's this idea that you are not bouncing back from or going back to a place of where you were before the trauma, but you're actually being able to move through it in a way that is to benefit yourselves and your community in a in a constructive, productive way towards progress of yourselves and your community. And Tarana Burke's, you know, intent of not wanting to focus on this you know trauma centered narrative and damage because that's what people are doing people are looking at the meeting movement a lot as a collection or accumulation of victims right and there's totally misunderstanding of deeper contests of misogyny of heteropatriarchy, of racism you know of all these different intersections of classism that come into play but It reminds me also of Eve Tuck's work. She, you know, over a decade ago, she wrote this letter to communities called Suspending Damage about how do we, you know, see ourselves in our communities as damaged all the time. And why don't we actually put that on pause and also consider images of desire and how we would like to be perceived and those images of desire end up being synonymous with humanized, you know, images. How do we appear to be more human and humanized? How is our humanity centered? So with issues like constructive resilience, you know, Gerald Weisner uses whose Indigenous scholar talks about survivance, which is this idea of not only being a survivor, but also being this able to how indigenous communities have intergenerationally been you know, able to not only transcend and persist through the obstacles and the oppression, the systematic oppression that the communities face, but they're doing things for the community language, you know, knowledge production in terms of healing and health and well being and values. There's all these different things that communities are doing to varying degrees to show that we are not just resilient, we're actually, you know, moving forward and trans, we're intergenerationally thinking, we're sustainable thinking. But we're also believing in this idea of our futurisms, you know, our the, the, our future generations and not only starting and ending with ourselves. So, you know, there are so many examples I can think of even Imani Perry, when you talk about joy, last summer, there was a piece she wrote in the Atlantic called Racism is Terrible, Blackness is Not. Mm-hmm. And talking about those of uh, those of you who see as protest you know we can also dance we can also celebrate and we also sing and it's a it's an act of insistence you know that we are still we are not only still here but we can still be human we can still have joy and she is basically saying and those of you who are not you know a part of our community can also enjoy and celebrate that with us and not see it as something you know impossible or distinct or separate from us and so this idea of constructive resilience it's funny because when you think of this i mean there's so many examples it makes me think of like going back to syria a lot of people don't know about this story in Madaya, where a first year dental student and a veterinarian were basically in the city that was locked out, you know, they, it was under control by Hamas and also the Syrian um, rebels, Syrian government, where basically no medical supplies can go in, no food can come in, and you have over 40,000 residents in the city of Madaya. And because there are hundreds and hundreds of landmines that are surrounding the city, there's also so many injuries, but there's also bombing from overhead. So there's no medical You know personnel they end up fleeing because of threats to their lives and then you have this veterinarian and this dental student step up to perform operations that they've never done before in their lives all through this mobile phone network on whatsapp with syrian americans using a cell phone and to me that's an act of constructive resilience what is something you could do within this and that's a story that people don't talk about right that's like that's something about syria we don't talk about we don't talk about this concept of Sumud, where Palestinian women, you know, are using issues, you know, they're using sisterhood, but also spiritual concepts of maternity and and motherhood in the community to be able to show how important communities must thrive, you know, whether it's through food and language and education. Like there's this constant persistence in terms of an insistence. It's like what Audra Simpson says: it's a refusal or a denial or rejection to think that we we don't have the capacity to even move through this and still be living, not just surviving, right, and not just enduring, but also living, and that we have the capacity to do that. And I and I think that's what this idea of having this inherent nobility you. I believe that there's a connection within the soul that allows us to move beyond the physical, emotional, mental damage, that there's also this capacity of the heart and soul that we need to also bring into play to help you know, balance and complement that. So I understand that resilience on its own is often contested and problematized. And I think it's nice for us to think of what are ways that we can Reimagine what resist what resistance and even resilience means in response to oppression. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, those are all such powerful examples. Um and yeah, that I mean, I guess I'm just going back, like I learned what joy looks and feels like. Um in activist spaces, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? I remember trying to, a student was like trying to understand, Mm -hmm. but like, why do you protest? I was like, well, sometimes it's just being in community Mm -hmm. with people, right? Like there's, there's all of the, the challenges of the struggles and, and, you know, organizing. And as you were talking about, like the fatigue and like, you know, when is this going to stop? Like how many generations? And there's those, those moments, those really heart-based moments in them where, um, you know, that kind of soul to soul, you're working towards that justice and recognizing each other's inherent nobility. Mm-hmm. Um, we are almost out of time, Sahar. I I want to turn to just think about um, just some of the challenges of doing social justice work Um you know, from a spiritual pers- uh, perspective within a spiritual structures, such as uh, higher education. Um, and and my understanding of the Baha'i faith is that justice and spirituality are kind of inherently interlinked. Um, and so I'm wondering... Um, you know, just if, if you can talk about how spirituality and maybe that's incorrect, but how spirituality informs your praxis and, and some of the limitations or challenges that you find and, and some ways that, that
1: you also work with these paradoxes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I definitely believe that justice is a noble quality and I think it's something that is felt in the soul. You know, I don't think it's something that it's only triggered by this physical sense or mental intellectual sense of what justice is that it pulls at the heart and the soul and you just feel it and sometimes you can't explain it because there's also critiques of what justice isn't right and what what it demands what it requires and how it's misused and often fetishized like we hear the term social justice used often what does it mean you know what does that mean what does that look like We can talk about requiring it from others, but how are we practicing it in terms of how we even require it or demand it even for ourselves? Mm -hmm. And so like systems and structures like higher education, which is funny, you know, I study critical university studies, you know, but I'm working within the system at the same time and I'm constantly finding myself at war, like mentally with this idea of being in a space that is so oppressive on so many different levels, but I'm working within it, you know, and there's this hypocrisy. But if, if I look at systems and structures as networks of minds and hearts, and those minds and hearts are at varying degrees in terms of where their intentions are at, or even where their spiritual, work is that you know because if i believe that everyone is inherently noble regardless of how oppressive an action or thought might be done there's still this capacity to be able to transform and you had mentioned earlier you know when we spoke that you needed to work within both to be in such a space like academia that you realized you had to do work within first and i think that there's this necessity of we have to do the work of excavating that spiritual sense of justice within ourselves first to be able to work within a space that that can be perceived as unjust and oppressive but there are little tiny points of light still that also strive and yearn for that same kind of degree of justice internally and externally as you do And like when you mentioned community matters to be able to build community with people without trying to carry the labor, you know, that is often perpetuated among like particular groups and people's right to do for the whole institution or the whole system and structure, and I think it's. It's the challenge starts within what can you know the frustrations of not feeling that i'm good enough i'm not, and those are because the physical and material and intellectual obstacles that are thrown at me in terms of you have to be competitive you have to publish this much you have to you know teach this way you have to implement these kind of you know this kind of curricula you have to you know there's all those kind of i guess you could say material or socially kind of informed forms of education but then there's not the spiritual element like how do i teach the students in the classroom to take care of themselves as well, of each other, and also just how to be better, not just to teach them about education studies or about particular injustices and justices within education, but how do I teach them also to excavate that justice from within and you know, and the same with my colleagues. So I think this idea of it begins with the self. And I can be frustrated and upset within working within a system that appears a spiritual because it's so focused on that social, mental, emotional, intellectual. That it means that I haven't done the spiritual work yet to be able to see how I can still work and transform within the space and I think higher ed. And I'm sure a lot of people would argue any system or structure they work within is there's a capacity to transform right even my mentor talks. He uses Catherine Malibu's theory of the plasticity of the brain and how the university is plastic and how it also can have this capacity to transform, mm. but um, and adapt. But it requires it requires movement and transformation from within, even starting at the individual level. You know, and then at the community level, and then at the institutional level. I don't think it can happen overnight. You know, it's not gonna, it seems very idealistic and optimistic to even maybe the way that I'm talking. People like, she's tripping, you know, I don't think it's possible to transform. But it's amazing to see how many scholars and activists and artists moving across and within academic spaces are already shifting the discourse. And not only the discourse, but action, you know, social action in terms of how we're reimagining, revisiting things. It's evolving, it's slow, but it's, there's, the things that are happening. And I think this idea to, to be able to see, you know, an institution transform within, is just very much indicative in terms of people, individuals, those hearts and minds also transforming within.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Heart Change Consciousness on TransformationTalkRadio.com with me, Dr. Trish Derosier. Make sure to come back next time so we can continue to awaken your soul purpose. Look forward to more conversations with your favorite authors, changemakers, influencers, activists, and many more who practice inspired spiritual activism and transform vulnerabilities into sources of strength. For more information about me and transformative consciousness coaching, visit transformativeconsciousness.com. That's transformativeconsciousness.com. This was Heart Change Consciousness on transformationtalkradio.com.